Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Michael Springer, who is a software engineer at Jazz HR. Michael joins us today from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the United States. Michael Springer, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software code? Some things I'd like to consider for maintainable software are ease of, I guess, picking it up, as a lot of us have probably encountered. You know, you go to a new place and you get thrown into a code base and it could be a behemoth to try to understand. And I think that kind of comes from both the area of, is it well-documented or is the code organized in such a way that you're able to search things because they have meaningful names, they have patterns that actually you know, make sense. I know like people like to over-abstract things and that can work if you uh, definitely adhere to the object-oriented paradigms. But sometimes people will go a little too far in the deep end, and we all know that most software that follows OOP is more like 50 applications that contain OOP all stitched together. You know, you mentioned uh, ease of picking it up. How long has it been since you've joined a uh, an organization or a code base that was new to you, but had been around for a while? It'd probably be about six years at this point. Okay. You know, if you're thinking about like the software projects that you're working on, what sort of strategies have you seen work in terms of help make like helping make it to improve the like say ease of onboarding and the say simplifying the ability for a newcomer to a project to wrap their head around the software project or the the business logic or understanding like the system i think it's been how the project itself is decomposed if it's been broken down into modules that have some coherence to what is presented to like the end user in cases of like modules for settings or person profiles like you can take a guess sometimes and just say i want to look for any classes that have person profile or you know user settings or admin panel and like structuring your code in such a way that it almost corresponds to the url structure if it's a web app or just like just kind of sticking to the logical sense of the call chain and not this weird behemoth where you have like a class that contains every single thing and the naming is not exactly what it is on the front end versus what it is in the back end which uh, that's a personal uh, experience I've had where a project has changed names and it's actually been confusing to upkeep because, in one area of the app, it'll refer to it as like screening, but then in the original iteration of the project, it was just called like a background check. And so now you have this this differentiation of naming, which you need to like keeping that consistent can also like greatly improve the whole onboarding procedure and uh, future iterations of maintaining it. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a you know. I think- an easy example for those listening to wrap your head around is whether or not you say have a user's model or a user model or something, right? And 
you might have a users table, but then you have, but does everybody in your organization call the people that are interacting with the application users or are there a certain type of user? And then, so that sometimes those classes can end up becoming, you might use like, you know, single table inheritance or something like that, where you end up having people or customers, admins, or you break those out at some point. But I think you make a good point about other areas of the organization or the applications where the things themselves, like the, let's say a background screening or, uh, or I think the background check or, you know, screening that, that example you use there. Do you find that the communication that they're using to st- on the public or the end user side of things that that's influencing that like oh we we we, we internally called it this but the the customers or the the public or the consumers that are interacting with the application refer to it a little bit differently so we want to match it there but or and or does the internal organization outside of just the coders also change how they talk about it but they're like well we say this but publicly we mean that and so that becomes like a weird translation challenge between whether it's marketing copy versus, you know, like how the operational side of the business kind of per- perceives that information? Yeah, that's actually, that's like a really good question. Um, I found in organizations I've worked in and currently work in, uh, a lot of the initial naming is driven by what the product and marketing team wants to refer to it as. And in the cases where their position on what it should be presented as changes, that can influence either confusion uh, where we decide to change the naming like partway or if you happen to have like a refactor at some point that's like, oh, we're going to, you know, change the public visible name to something, but then all of the controllers are going to be the old name. And so future engineers are going to come in and just be, you know, super confused. And the solution there tends to be, do you have some form of like a, large glossary list somewhere that kind of says, well, this means this in this department and this other department refers to it as this. And publicly it means this in the code. It may mean one of these three things. That's been something that I've witnessed uh, a number of times on projects that we've worked on where our clients will be, well, they're talking about things and like a, they'll be putting in a JIRA ticket for like, we want to work on this new feature or we need to improve some reporting or like that. These names of things don't match anything in your code whatsoever. So what do you what do you think that used to mean six years ago when this was first built? And sometimes the people that are even even like onboarding people that aren't say software developers can be a challenge within an organization because of the same glossary changes or or a lack of maintaining something like that or making the change consistently throughout the whole the whole system. Right, right. Because it's it's not just a especially when you're using an working in an end user product like naming is not just pertinent to the developers, it's pertinent to every like vertical slice of the organization to like make sure that when someone says, you know, a user, they mean a user and not just a specific role of a user or what the, you know, engineering class for a user means or, you know, just making sure that everyone is kind of on the same page to help, you know, make iterations on it easier or for someone to pick it up easier or, just any any aspect of the whole uh, chain. You know, another thing you had touched on, kind of like code being well organized and like following like URL structures, like say on a web application, having that kind of match down to the uh, on the code level. Are are you often working with 
any frameworks or anything like that to help you with that that are kind of opinionated in that nature? Um, I wouldn't say anything that forces that opinion. I currently work in an Angular JS application where we do enforce it via like a routing system and the routing system tends to match to the name of the module that it's living in. Yeah, I know that was like a big thing, uh, kind of an aha moment back in the days when I would say first saw like Ruby on Rails back in like 2005. It was just like, oh, this makes sense if we could just, it just magically does this stuff if you just follow these conventions. And so I know that not all frameworks and platforms are, are kind of enforcing that, but it def- definitely does think having some consistency there and definitely helps make things easier to make, at least helps it make it obvious where to first look, I suppose, for the code that matches what you're trying to make a change to. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely think it's it's been something to like ease the, uh, the developer flow, like especially when you come back to something that you haven't touched on in months or years where the name of a module, the name of a route, like all, like, like every piece of that kind of like shares the same naming uh convention so that way you're not like trying to hunt for a module in a directory that you know has nothing to abs- like nothing to do with it that makes sense were you around were those kind of conventions in that particular project already set before you got there or if not were you part of the, the conversations around kind of defining those some later stages i was a lot of the Angular conventions got started before I started working on them, uh, especially for like how we approach the naming uh, and like the organization of them. And uh, some of them have kind of happened while I've been working on it, as we do like a almost like a second revision on like older code or um, trying to embrace newer patterns as we build out newer functions. I know that something you know in preparing for this conversation you had shared that you have some, you know, your experience dealing with uh, dependencies and in particular outdated dependencies in applications, uh, let's say with examples of like where they no longer work with newer runtimes. Could you, could you, could you elaborate a little bit on what, what, like some examples of that? Yeah. So the, I think one of my, the points I was talking about was a internal application that it's actually, it's a chatbot, and it's, built on top of the, what I would now consider like unmaintained uh, Hubot framework from GitHub. And it was built on older uh, CoffeeScript. There's kind of like this weird forced dependency on the older CoffeeScript by the Slack adapter. And a lot of issues have been filed. They're like, hey, can we like finally move to the new, you know, Hubot slack to like uh, the newer coffee version and the answer has kind of like been a no and and that's like that, that kind of led me down the path of like all right maybe i should like start sunsetting pieces of this framework and get off of it entirely and, and it, it's just uh we've ran into some issues where older modules will have implemented something that uh was deprecated in a later version and because of like how you're like injecting modules from an NPM package. You don't really have as much control over it as you would uh, if you uh, hosted it yourself in, in, within the code base. And then a lot of referring back to the the fact that a lot of things were injected from modules is when packages go unmaintained, like 
you you now kind of either have the option of maintain a copy yourself or drop it. When when that happens, when let's say we uh, a module is no longer maintained, you know it's a, it's an interesting thing that I've I've had a lot of different varying thoughts about over the last few years because. I oversee like team people on my team, for example, will be looking at potential. We work with Ruby on Rails primarily, and so they'll be looking at a Ruby gem or a couple, exploring some options with different Ruby gems. And we often work on older applications too, so they might be running on an older version of Rails. So we might need to look for some gems that work on older, work against older version of Rails. But there's also this like worry of, well, this particular gem hasn't been seen any activity on it on GitHub or GitLab in a couple of years now, so it's no longer maintained, it's maybe considered not safe to use that. Would you say that's accurate or? Yeah. Sometimes you don't want to have to take over the maintainer uh, ownership because that means now you're the one responsible for that package, assuming it's still being used. As for whether things can or cannot be safe, it like can depend on what the package is actually doing. Like Sometimes the ones that are packaged that you have that are like self-contained and they themselves don't sit on top of, you know, the ever-growing tree of dependencies, those can tend to be a little bit more safe. But if it's something that's like, it's an unmaintained package and it has a, like a, just a longer list of dependencies on t- underneath of it, that's definitely where you get into like that hairy, like zone of like, all right, maybe, you know, we should try to find something else or perhaps uh, roll our own, uh, internal version based off of this that can uh, be more in line with like the modern runtime. Yeah, I think that, that's interesting. I like that that idea of like assessing the what other packages or dependencies that that particular dependency might be bring you know carrying along for the ride because you know sometimes you you know we'll we'll need a dependency for maybe like an API call client or something like that or or maybe just to perform even some really s- much smaller task for like markdown i don't know just but it, depending on like the the situation that you're dealing with like you pull in these packages it has its own set of dependencies those potentially have their own dependencies and so you're bringing in one thing but then a couple years down the road you're like oh now we're dealing with some weird version conflicts between a couple different because we we do need this one version that we're heavily reliant on but there's another dependency that's we're not able to bump up for whatever reason. And that one has a dependency hard-coded to an earlier version, and now we're kind of like trying to map that all out. And so that that could be, as you said, like a hairy situation. But if you can find dependencies that are more self-contained, that can be good. The thing I'm always like trying to remind people on my team, for example, is just like, well, we can definitely heavily lean on the work that the other people have done already. We may not need to like pull that dependency, but as you said, you could bring over some of the ideas or concepts. Uh, you could literally just sometimes even bundle it into your, whether or not that's a good idea, but you can sometimes copy and paste some pieces of it to get what you get, what you need out of it. And then that that's okay. Um, as it approaches well, but do you, do you and your team talk about this a lot about like, what, is there like any decision process the team makes or is that, or do all the developers kind of have some Liberty on picking dependencies and pulling them in and, and, and just assuming that that would just get sorted out at a pull request type process? Typically, we don't just let people just go and pull a, a package in just to solve a problem. Uh, there is usually some sort of vetting procedure or a discussion had, uh, or as long as we hear like are referring to 
trusted sources depending on the project. Um, but yeah, like you, we typically want to avoid the just you know npm install away a problem because it can incur more security holes or just I'm, I'm coming from that school of a javascript developer where when people started npm installing away problems i was like i don't want to do this this is this doesn't make sense and now i'm like all right i can like we'll go through a series of like digging through npm trying to find like what's modern what's actually maintained and like what the level of like depth I have to go to, to like, look at every dependency, because like, if it's something that like, I can either cherry pick out the piece I need, or sometimes, you know, if it's like a larger library, like something that does like image magic or something that's like a little bit more processing heavy, you know, you, you might not have an option, but yeah, like typically in a work scenario, we, we do a lot of vetting before just installing a, a third party package to resolve a problem. Yeah, I'm always curious how often teams have those types of conversations. And on some level, people, you know, even an individual developer on a team is vetting it to a degree, but it's hard. Sometimes you don't always have that like experience of knowing just how much it could, that trade-off, it might be really quick right now to use it, but like two or three years down the road, it might become like a huge mess for you to untangle and sort out later. But sometimes that can help you get where you need to be quicker too, right? So that's like a, it's an interesting trade-off that we have to make to produce some code or produce release some features that you know that the product teams uh, pushing for. So, where does uh, things like testing come into play with that? Do you spend a lot of time working on writing tests around to account for uh, whether or not these dependencies may change? Actually, no. But now that you mention it, probably should. Uh, <laughs> we uh, we tend to not write tests to test the dependency, but we when we write testing, we want to make sure that like whatever our interaction with it is is still happening as expected. And like that kind of goes back to the whole you want to trust that a package is vetted itself. Like if you're spending time writing tests for another person's, you know, package, then probably should have just written it yourself at that point. That's fair. It's always, it's an interesting thing. Cause it's like, even with like APIs, you know, they, they sometimes change and you, you might've missed a, an email or two that got sent out about some incoming changes. Uh, and so you don't find out until something's broken or something. And I feel like in general, that's been a lot less of an issue now in the last few years than it was say 10 to 15 years ago, but it's, I still have, I carry that sort of baggage still as a software developer that like, I'm like, I don't trust other things sometimes, but I also don't have the time to just write tests for every single potential little edge case that could happen. You have to kind of pick your, your battles there. I'm curious, uh, what sort of things that your team does try to focus in where, maybe where, where you, you would like to see your team, uh, maybe as another question there, um, whether or not you want to dig into that, I don't want to call you or your team out on anything if you feel like there's a disconnect there but like what is ideal for testing uh, especially given that you're working on say front end stacks in the angular and and in that that area which is a little bit different than where i'm typically working um actually we're a like a full stack shop so it's a it's a big mess of uh you know php for the back end and angular up front um, not mess, but like, just, you know, it's just, we're all over the place in terms of like what libraries and frameworks we're using and 
Uh, we do have a, like a, a heavy emphasis on end-to-end testing and integration testing, especially for like more of our modern uh, APIs to make sure that you know the expectations are what we are actually you know expecting them to be. Uh, and it has actually helped catch some things uh, before going to production where you know we we released a new API and we're getting ready to push it out and some like minor detail, like just gets missed and like luckily that that just by having that assertion of an API endpoint like responding correctly can cause a blow up in you know staging and not in uh, for a user. <laughs> Is that with that type of uh, using PHP and Angular? Are those managed as separate projects, separate teams, or do you do any sort of like atomic commit type approach to deploying everything at once, or you're able to kind of piecemeal the deployments out? It's uh, we're all responsible for features that go across the entire stack. We do have the ability to do like the atomic commit, where we can like say release the API separate from the front end, uh, which is super helpful. Whatever you like, let's say you want to stop the API from responding with something or you change the interface, but like the front end doesn't know about it yet or yeah, like, no, we're, we're pretty, we're, we're a full stack shop. I know some people don't like to use that word, but I'm okay with the word. Okay, great. (laughs) I think it's been where that, that particular title thing has come up. It's been interesting for me to try to wrap my head around it because, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure. Exactly how long you've been in the industry, but I feel like the the concept of what a front end developer has is has evolved over the years, and full stack came into play. And I feel like it can be a little confusing at times for some people to be like, "Well, am I a front end front end developer or a full stack developer? Does that need is there a half stack developer?" Is a little cheeky answer. Right, right. You mean like, yeah. Recently, the whole uh, concept of you have the front of the front and then the back of the front, and then like. I mean, I think just the back is still like typically it's like, oh man, like now I'm thinking about this. Yeah, like you have you have fr- you have the front end which can also has a back end to it, but then that back end talks to an API which is what was you know traditionally the back end. We have we have trouble. I think what we're learning is even it's hard to name things in every facet of our world. We'll be back with our interview with Michael in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you so much for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do you know someone that I should be interviewing with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Michael Springer. Do you believe that teams underinvest in the documentation? I mean, I think that's uh, as a whole, people probably have a tendency, especially at like a just from experience at like different organizations. Documentation has always been like a afterthought sometimes. Not like saying that my team underinvests in documentation. I'm just saying like as a general experience sort of thing where I've been at organizations where I found out we had a wiki when they were deleting it, but it's just like a, a lot of organizations and it, it kind of like stinks to think about this, but like documentation uh, has to kind of be like a cultural level sort of thing. 
Uh, otherwise, you just kind of rely on um, uh, tribal knowledge. That's it. Where it's like, it's like, oh, uh, you have a question about this part of the API, go talk to this guy. Or, you know, this person knows more about this feature than anyone else. And that can be, you know, great in the short term, but uh, in the long term, you can find yourself getting bitten by that whenever people leave. Yes. It's the, the challenges of, it's almost like re- relying on that uh, real-time communication to talk about those things. Like, oh, I have a th- question about this. Or you become really reliant on the history of like your Git, you know, what's in the Git logs or Git blame or your ticket ticketing system if you haven't changed that a few times over the years and whether or not you've retained older versions of things. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how often you go back and look at previous versions of code. Um, I feel like we're spending a lot of time looking at the current state of things and trying to comprehend things, let alone trying to go back and figure out what how things used to work five or six years ago when some changes were first implemented. So we, we lean on those those wise people that knew about the things back in the day uh, until they, you know, and then they leave and then there's kind of that scramble to like, Oh, I hope they can, can you, can you document everything you know before you leave? And I know that can be a, seems like a nice idea in, in theory, but I think you're, you know, you probably lose out a lot of that information at some point. So what type of documentation do you find most valuable or to kind of depend on the, the scenario? I do find it depends on the scenario like documentation that kind of breaks down like how something kind of like stitches together uh, is really important, especially with systems that kind of abstract away things to the point where it's almost magical. Just trying to think documentation with uh, strong examples is also like really valuable, but it kind of comes down to like making sure that like the code above all else like has contracts that are easily understood and like you're not looking at like a function that just has like a single parameter in it and then like now you have to like somehow like decode whether or not like that single parameter has you know 10 sub properties to it so it's kind of like a mix where it's like you want you want stuff written down in like a wiki or a readme somewhere but it does kind of come down like come back to like the code itself needs to be uh, well-written and structured in a way that, like, I can, like, maybe, you know, putz through things a bit, uh, look at a previous, uh, like, release tag to see, like, what was added and, like, get an idea of, like, like, oh, it's like, oh, we added a, you know, implementation of this, you know, API endpoint. Well, like, now I have, like, a general idea of, like, the full slice for setting up, like, that kind of API endpoint. Right. And I'm curious, you know, on that, you know, thinking about different types of documentation, it kind of depends on the, you, you were touching on whether things go into a wiki or the, the, the code itself being kind of conveying and being as clear as possible for people. And do you do you do a lot of inline commenting in, in the type of work that you're doing? Or do you tend to rely on just the verboseness of the how you're writing up the syntax? A little bit of both. Uh, if the code, if like, if I look at the code and like, I come back to it a day later and I can't, you know, really tell what it's doing here. Or if there's like a conditional that like, it makes sense at the time and it is required for something to happen. Like I'll throw in like a little, you know, 
inline comment that says, hey, this needs to be here because blah, or like this is where we're checking for XYZ condition. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, I was just reflecting on a, uh, a guest that I had on a while back named Tudor Gerba, who, who was sharing some statistics about software developers. And I just want to kind of get your, your thoughts on this, where they've done some, uh, some studies and they've kind of assessed that developers spend more than 50% of their time reading code. Does that sound about right to you? I'll be honest. Yeah, that does sound a bit right. Like the other day I like spent maybe like a few hours on a, on a, uh, a work task and I looked at like the, the end result and I'm like, how was, it's like, how did that, how did that much time go into just like what ended up being like maybe 10 lines of code? And it's like, I had to like go through, read the code, try to find like a strong example of like what I'm implementing, uh, look at what the interfaces are requiring, uh, see if there's any like previous uh, comments on like a GitHub PR or if there's like an inline uh, doc block relating to this, but yeah, like it, it definitely feels like a lot. You spend more time, at least half of your time, reading the code before you even like just implement something. So you would agree that developers shouldn't be paid based on the number of lines of code they produce? Oh my god, no! Uh, I <laughs> that's like I mean, if that's the case, I owe my company a lot of money. Uh, given like I I think I just committed something where like I deleted like more code than I added. So <laughs> oh, you are a saint. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm, even though I don't work there, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, we don't spend enough time deleting uh, unused or outdated code, which is another thing I often wonder is like, do teams, you mentioned like teams, it's a cultural thing, whether or not they're investing a lot of time in documentation. And uh, I think one thing that I've noticed is there's been a grow a, a trend towards, you know, celebrating removing code that's like dead code. But I don't hear enough, and this is something I'm just trying to like spread the the new gospel of like deleting outdated documentation, feeling comfortable enough to get rid of that as well. Because I think there's always a fear, like, well, if we get rid of it, then we might not be able to reference it again in the future. But like, archive it, delete it, whatever. Just because also another problem with documentation is if there's a lot of irrelevant documentation that's not terribly helpful to anyone either. Like, well, don't. Oh, that's outdated. You know, if like if no one's updating it, then is outdated documentation helpful or is it causing more? Is it adding more noise and or potentially conveying to the new people that you're bringing into your team that you don't value grooming, let's say, or gardening or cleaning up the weeds and stuff like that as well? I think that should apply to documentation as well. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Like, I know I've personally experienced uh, someone coming to me about like a piece of documentation and I just had the oh, crap response because it's like they're like oh this is the not even like this is outdated and they're completely wrong version of the documentation because it got moved somewhere else and yeah definitely something to uh i i I agree that like definitely to be more of a cultural thing to not just add documentation but also like prune it as well prune your documentation everyone so i know you worked on a number of projects and on say like you know your team has like hack days and such, and that later became projects you needed to kind of take care of on a day to day basis at work as part of your responsibilities. Can you share some examples, or do you have a story? I know you mentioned like the chatbot. Is that one of those types of projects? Uh, yeah. So the chatbot um, kind of predates me. Actually, uh, it was at it was at the company before I was. Um, 
it was one of those setups where someone threw a Hubot instance on Heroku back when you could just have a free API living out in the wild, uh, as was the norm at the time. And as like a hack day thing, I was like, oh man, I really want to like add more functionality to this thing. It was kind of like a non-immediate response, but like eventually more functions of it started to be less fun and like jokey and actually like, hey, what's deployed to this staging environment? Like which version, who did it? And the functions started to become more uh, things to ease developer uh, or I guess improve developer quality of life. Deploying like a piece of code went from being a knowing how to like check all the boxes and fill out all the uh, forms on a Jenkins uh, build screen to just saying, I want to deploy to staging with this branch. And it's like one of those things is like eventually became a, a responsibility and like started getting, trying to find a way to like formalize the process around it. Those are always kind of fun projects. I'm trying to remember back. It's been a while since I've done anything like that myself. But I'm, I'm remembering team members and even myself way back in the day doing things like that where you'd work on these fun little things and like, oh, now this is kind of shown to prove more value to the team or what have you. And some of those, you know, we saw some projects that are running day to day that help that, you know, developers that haven't been here in five years ago uh, worked on, you know, quite a while ago. Do you often start off those types of projects thinking like, oh, it'd be really cool if we could do this for to help the team? Or is it like you want to scratch an itch to do something and then and then sometimes they just kind of manifest into something else? Yeah, I think they tend they tend to be like uh like scratch an itch, like, oh man, it'd be really cool if like our admin panels in the application had this information because it's something that people, you know, ask for all the time or it's like a really big uh you know, time sync to hunt down, but like we know a quick way to like provide a query for it or just like a lot of those. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like a like scratching the uh, the itch kind of thing. And especially if the itch becomes bad enough that you're like, all right, I'm going to like sit down five minutes, just hammer this out, see if it actually works. And then like what the response is to that thing existing now. Do you feel like you, if you do that now, you have a different set of filters and whether or not you're going to scratch that itch versus like go look for some third party tool or something? Uh, typically, if it's like something that would require a third party, that definitely has to go through like a lot more filters and systems and uh, approval chains. So typically, the itches that uh, I know I personally uh, try to solve tend to be things that like I can use existing systems that we have or integrate with existing systems uh, to uh, provide a better experience internally, which doesn't require as many filters, but more recently it's been, uh, it went from me doing things on my own and people going, that's cool to, all right, let's maybe talk about this and like whether or not that's a good add as functionality. It's the, uh, it's interesting. I, I think uh, there's, I've, I've personally become very uh, hesitant to, for better or for worse, when when, when I have people on our team that are like, ooh, like let's build our own little, like let's say, 
chat tool to automate our deployments or something. And like if they were, someone on the team were to say that now, I'd be like, are there some tools we could just take advantage of for that before we build that ourselves? Because I'm more nervous as someone that's as someone that knows about the long-term impact of those projects where like we, we have a couple of projects that, you know, as I said, were built years ago by people that most people on the team now don't haven't really worked on. And so I'm like, okay, I know how much time we've invested into that tool and maybe at the time, but it's like there's there's that balance of like sometimes those tools become part of like your team's operational functionality. And and I think as you mentioned earlier with like needing to sunset pieces of your project or your uh, dependencies or something like that, there also sometimes needs to have those conversations like maybe we need to sunset that thing we built ourselves because there's a perfectly viable solution that we can pay for off the shelf that we're not really responsible for taking care of anymore. So it's like it's not i'm i'm for better or for worse i've become fearful of the long term cost of maintaining that software even if it's a small itch to scratch seemingly today because i know that in like 6 to 10 years if it survives then it's something that we're now responsible for do you feel like you've had any of that sort of kind of conclusions over the years yeah typically it's the uh the filters of other people responding okay like that's a good idea but we're going to approach it a little differently. Uh, and that definitely helps towards like the overall maintainability. So like kind of going back to like the, the whole like chat bot to do deployments, like our chat bot doesn't actually do the deployment. It's just like a proxy to the actual deploy system. So that way, if the bot goes away, we're not completely hosed. And if we want to change the deployment system, the bot doesn't have to necessarily also go away either. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. So a couple of topics I like to ask most people on the, the show. And one of them is, do you find yourself more often on team rewrite or team refactor? Yeah, I tend to lean towards the uh, team rewrite typically because it's the approach of a second iteration on things. And oftentimes when you try to refactor, you have to dance around uh, any tech that you might have incurred previously. The chance to rewrite is sometimes a little bit alleviating where you're like, you're able to simplify some sort of like module or interfaces or an abstraction that was not necessary, or maybe you've realized that you need to abstract something a little bit more. Uh, whereas a, re a refactor when you're trying to like still play within these existing sandbox can be a bit of a uh, burden. Okay. So that's actually the approach that I've been taking with the, uh, the chat bot at work has been instead of just like doing a complete rewrite out the gate uh, in order to maintain, you know, it's still functioning day to day, but also wanting to like implement new bits as I go. Uh, we've been slowly rewriting 
like components at a time to the point where we're going to eventually be able to just discontinue use of like the core framework underneath. Are there some strategies that you've seen work well for teams when they're exploring a rewrite to, let's say, set themselves up on a better foot for the next time around? Because I I always wonder how teams uh, start to kind of deal with the the challenges of like are some of the are some of the the issues that we've incurred in this existing application because of just because it's just the natural tendency of the software and how things evolve and grow and businesses that grow. And so we can learn from that. Or is it some of that related to people and, per, and process that we've, we never really nailed down, but if we get a fresh start again, we'll hopefully avoid it. I know from personal experience, we did a, a rewrite project. And one of the things we did before we even wrote a line of code was we looked at the piece, like the, the components that we were replacing and like why things were structured in a certain way, why there were like certain parts of the interface, why different classes and objects had properties on them, and whether there was a way for us to do this better. And like when we found things that were just added as a band-aid solution, we, f- we were trying to find uh, ways to like, if we could decompose it better uh, in order to support that sort of case or... Uh, if there are things that are like in there that are no longer necessary and now we have a chance to not have to write logic to support that, uh, which definitely tends to be more of the the common case when you're doing a re- rewrite is you find that like there's a whole slew of functionality that you're like, oh, we don't even like no one's used this anymore. So we can actually just not not have we can like skip like an entire like chunk of the code base. That's good. And. In your environment, do you have some good statistics or data points to help kind of point in that direction? Like, you know, I talked to some developers and they're like, I have no idea if this area of the code ever gets used or not. And, or we know that maybe like one, one customer uses it, but the other 99 probably don't even know it's there. But if we got rid of it, like that client would get upset with us. Do you have good metrics on things like that? We've um, been working towards building out better metrics around these sorts of things uh, and making sure that that's part of the uh, end goal of, of a project. Uh, so, like, we do have the ability to look at, like, usage rates uh, through through different, like, analytics tools, be it through even a, uh, a dashboard that looks at, like, the frequency of logs produced by, like, that piece of the code or some sort of end-user, like, heat mapping tool or... Hmm. Interesting. A topic I usually try to cover with people as well. When when I, when technical debt is identified amongst your team, do you feel like you have a pretty consistent process for as a team on how you determine whether or not you're going to address it in the near future versus someday maybe? And how you how do you organize that type of work? We tend to organize it through like we'll have refinement processes, like series of grooming meetings where we'll like look at bugs that have been filed or issues that have been like coming in through our uh, support system and see like if it's if it's like you know something that's super frequent then like that gets prioritized but if it's something that happens like once in a year then it might get discarded outright and because it's like all right well we're we have a project upcoming anyway so we're just gonna hold off on that a little bit longer and it's gonna get removed uh in like six months. 
That sounds like you have a like a healthy uh, approach to that there. And so for those listening, let's say that there's a, a developer out there listening who works on a team where they don't feel like their team has those conversations often enough and they're and maybe they've raised like some concerns of like, well, this feels like a messy area of the code, but I don't, or this identifying some technical debt and they want to address it, but they aren't, they didn't really get some like thumbs up in the past. Maybe let's invest some time there. Um, what advice could you offer them on how to like kind of approach their peers and or product owner on how to like prioritize some time there to, to look into these issues to smooth things out? I think one thing is to definitely be able to like provide a good case for it. In one example I had, I was able to provide a search for our logging system and like, hey, this error has come up like 83 times in the last year. That's been really annoying to our end users and it could have been resolved by us doing, you know, one thing. Uh, I think it just kind of comes down to um, being able to provide a good case. Like sometimes like we feel like, oh, you, you say like, hey, this needs to be fixed up, uh, that's not always like a strong enough case. Uh, in my personal experience, I've uh, had to deal with the, yes, we, we should clean it up, but there's not a good like business case for it. And as an engineer, you're like, how is there not a business case? It's part, it's part of the application. Like that's enough business case for me. So I think it kind of like comes down to if you're able to like, if it's something that like you see and you're like, all right, this is definitely a problem if you're able to like help provide a good story and a, like a narrative around why and like maybe even a how to approach cleaning it up, that can definitely help uh, encourage others to see your point of view, so to speak. Right. Yeah, that's some that's some good advice there. Like thinking about how you can you know you reference even pulling in some data points, you know, present your 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 case there and such as well. Yeah, that, that's that that's helpful. And also knowing that there's there are times when there's some smaller amounts of technique that like, we could probably live with, you know? Uh, maybe it only happens a few times a year. So like, does every bug, do you think that every bug in an application needs to be resolved or squashed? I'm not sure if I'm gonna catch hell for this. No, <laughs> but it's it's a, like not every bug, it's like, yes, it'd be great to like squash every bug uh, that comes up, but sometimes the bugs are like, I'm not, I don't want to be like, it's a feature. Uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes a bug needs to be not so much squashed as it is like you need to put some like sort of exception handling or logging around it because it's like the noise that can come up sometimes from like an error happening can help inform other things such as uh, someone doing a thing that they really shouldn't be able to do. And if that's either by like... Uh, the system getting circumvented in some way or you didn't put enough uh safeguards in like it it's sometimes you go like you do need to leave the bugs in just for a bit maybe uh to get a full picture as like what's really happening as opposed to like the you know we saw x come up gotta fix it but it's like well why did that happen uh so like sometimes it's good for them to stick around uh, and sometimes they'll just like, they're not high enough priority to like even bother with. For what it's worth, I, I agree with that. I, 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 I think sometimes you need that context of like, why is this bug being triggered? But I also want to be wary of teams like becoming, getting to a scenario that's like, well, let's wait on looking into bugs because we don't know if it's a serious bug or not all bug tracking software can like help point you in the right direction of uh, 
how severe of an issue it is, right? Sometimes it could be like, the, well, it got hit once, but it was just a huge issue or just because we think it's in a certain area of the code base, we, we need to like look at that sooner. I think every team needs to figure that out probably and understand what's important or not. I would say, I wouldn't say like not to just outright ignore bugs. I definitely think it's worth get doing the due diligence to triage, like actually like see what's going on and like to find out if it's like, like an internal user, like using a legacy API endpoint that like, yeah, you know, it exists, but like, it's also kind of on them to like, make sure that they input it correctly because it's supposed to be there, whether it's actually like a, oh crap, we just deployed this and it's legitimately an issue. And to the user, like they don't really see it as a big issue, but then like, like, let's say it's like, a user does a thing and like they see like an error modal, but then they refresh and everything's fine. And then you find out that it's like just been gen- generating tons and tons of orphaned records in your DB and you're about to deal with something uh, maxing out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's no good. Yeah, that, that, definitely pay attention to those things. So a couple of quick last questions. Uh, is there a non-technical, non-software development related book that you often find yourself recommending to peers? One that's uh, I was recommended heavily and spent a good deal reading was um, Deep Work. I have a personal problem of focus, and I know lots of other people in this field do as well. It definitely helped me uh, get some ideas around what it meant to like really approach work and like the idea behind shallow versus deep work. Uh, definitely something valuable to people. Uh, outside of software in general, you could, uh, if, if you're a writer, I think there's actually a lot of good examples of academics in the book. Excellent. I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes for all the all the listeners. And where can uh, those listening best follow your thoughts on software development online? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I do have a Twitter, uh, although it is mostly dedicated to hobby work instead. Uh, there will be the occasional software thought. Uh, leak out. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce my uh, Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Springer without vowels. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. There'll, there'll be a link for everybody in the show notes there. Well, with that, Michael, it's, it's been such a delight having you join us today on Maintainable. Thanks for talking shop with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. 